If you'll turn with me now to John chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at verses 35 to 51, the end of chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1064 in the, the green Bibles and in the larger print Bibles, 1648. Last week, we heard John the baptizer as he bore witness to Jesus. John understood very clearly that he was not the main character or the main event in what was going on. Jesus was. John's mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. And he was very careful to point away from himself to Jesus. John the baptizer also had a clear message about Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who will baptize people with God's Holy Spirit. He will give them new life. John the baptizer knew he couldn't take people's sin away, nor could he give them new life. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is the one to focus on. He's the one to believe in. He's the one to follow. And in our passage this morning, we find five people who begin to do that. And as we read this, you and I are being given an invitation. We're being invited to come and see. So if you find John chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, 
I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, If you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, you will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's Word. And there are certainly things we can learn from this passage about being witnesses for Jesus, calling other people to come and see who He is and what He can do. We can learn things about that. But first and foremost, this is an invitation to you and me. Whether we're not yet Christians or whether we've been Christians for years. When we started looking at John's gospel, we noticed John tells us why he wrote it. It's so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. This book was written so that non-believers would come to believe, and it was written that those who already do believe would come to a deeper, stronger faith in Jesus. So when this passage says, come and see, it's an invitation to all of us. Come for the first time or come again and find more than you find before. The passage is in two sections. The first section centers on a question Jesus asks. The question is, what do you want? And the second section centers on a promise Jesus makes. You will see greater things. So first of all, the question in verses 35 to 42. What do you want? Verse 35 says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. We heard about John the baptizer last week, and now we learn that he has followers. He has disciples. That's not surprising. As we saw last week, at this point, John is a public figure with a powerful message. It's natural that people who are seeking God, spiritually interested people, would follow John. And clearly John isn't stopping them from following him. But now that Jesus has gone public, now that Jesus has stepped forward from his obscurity, John wants them to turn their attention to Jesus. So he says to these two disciples who happen to be with him, did I mention already that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Did you pick up on that announcement I made yesterday? Or were you two over at the hamburger van when I pointed that out? He's the one to follow. The two disciples get the hint and they do follow Jesus. Meaning they start following him as he walks down the road. But these are also the first steps to becoming disciples of Jesus. They had been attracted to John because they're serious about turning from their sin and serious about knowing God. 
And so when John points to Jesus as the Lamb of God, they begin to follow Jesus. Not out of idle curiosity, not because he's the new show in town, but because they have been told he's the one who can deal with the serious matters they are concerned about. And as they follow him, verse 38, Jesus turns around and he says the first words we have heard him speak in John's gospel. What do you want? We could read that as a pretty simple question, as in, hi, can I help you? But in the context of the whole of John's gospel, we have to take it as more significant than that. These two men have started following Jesus, and he is challenging them to consider, what do you really want from me? What do you want from life? What are you looking for? And it's a question not just for these two disciples, it's for all of us. If you're not a Christian, why are you here this morning? What are you looking for? What do you want? Are you here because you have to be? Because your parents or your spouse make you come? Or if they don't make you come, are you here because you don't want to upset them? If that's the case, then you may not be interested in Jesus at all. But the question still stands, what do you want? If you're not interested in Jesus, what is it you want in life? Is it something more significant than having your sins forgiven and being welcomed into God's family? Is what you are chasing in life truly more important than that? Or are you actually just burying your head in the sand when it comes to those big issues? Are you going through life trying to ignore them? But don't you owe it to yourself to think about what you want? Beyond your exams, beyond your qualifications, beyond your career and your family, beyond retirement, beyond death? Are you really aiming to go through life trying to stay busy and not think about what your life is even for? I would guess, though, most of us are here by choice. So then, if you're not a Christian, why are you here? What do you want? Are you looking for peace? Some rest in the storm of your life? Are you ready to follow Jesus and obey him? Or are you just looking for a bit of help through a difficult time? Most of us here are Christians. We profess to be followers of Jesus. But the question is just as relevant for us. What do you want? 
Maybe you used to come here to meet with Jesus. Is that still why you come? To meet with him and be instructed by him and led by him? Or have you quietly set aside that ambition? Have you fenced off more and more areas of your life from Jesus as time has gone by? To the point where you're really here just to sing a few songs and meet a few friends. Not to have your boat rocked by Jesus. Have you decided that you can be trusted to run your life better than he can? That he can't really help you day to day? So you still hope maybe for something from him after death, but in the meantime, you want other things. Do you have other goals than being a disciple of Jesus? What do you want is a question that never goes away for any of us. And as you and I consider the question, we have to take this truth into account. When we commit to following Jesus, he will make something of our life. Look how that's shown here in our passage. In verse 38, Jesus turns to the two disciples and he asks, what do you want? Apparently, that wasn't really a question they were ready for. They're a bit off guard, and all they can come up with is, Rabbi, where are you staying? Rabbi means teacher. At this point, in spite of what John the baptizer has told them, teacher is as far as these men are ready to go in the position they give to Jesus. But Jesus isn't put off. He invites them to come and see, and they do. And what we might expect now is to hear about these hours they spend with Jesus. What did they ask him? What did he tell them? Clearly, it was enough to convince them they had found the Messiah, God's anointed one who was promised in the Old Testament. We know that because one of these men, Andrew, goes later and tells his brother that's who Jesus is. But why would John, the writer of this gospel, just skip over those hours with Jesus? Well, as I said, in verse 40, we learn that one of these first two disciples was Andrew. The other one, though, is not named at all in this whole passage. But it's highly likely it is John, the writer of this book. As we go through the book, we'll see that John has a habit of obscuring himself. But we know he writes as an eyewitness to the things he's telling us about. Even in this passage, there are little details that only an eyewitness would be aware of, such as the time of day they met Jesus. Verse 39 says it was about four in the afternoon. Those are the kind of details an eyewitness would remember. And assuming John is the other disciple who begins to follow Jesus here, he chooses to skip over those hours he and Andrew spent with Jesus because he wants us to focus actually on something that happened afterwards. 
Look at verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. By the time John is writing this book, Peter is a very well-known figure. He became one of the main leaders of the early church. But at this point, he was called Simon, and he'd almost certainly never met Jesus before. And the focus of this section is what happens when he does meet Jesus. Jesus tells Simon what he's going to make of him. He's going to make him a rock. That's what Peter means in Greek, which is the language John used when he wrote this book. Jesus would actually have said it in Aramaic, which is Cephas. In both languages, it means rock. Now, at this stage, we don't know what it means that Peter's going to be a rock. But the point is, Jesus knows. Andrew brought Simon to see Jesus... And Jesus immediately shows that he sees Simon. And not just in a superficial surface way, Jesus sees his whole life. Jesus knows what he's going to make of Simon's life. And Jesus changes his name accordingly ahead of time. Now, it will be years before Peter actually lives up to his new name. And along the way, he's going to make some big mistakes. At least once, he's going to fail spectacularly. But he will become a rock. A solid pillar of the church. At this point, that is years away. But right here at the beginning, Jesus says, I see you, Simon Peter. And I see what I'm going to make of you. When Simon Peter came to Jesus, he came to the one who had more in store for him than he could have imagined. And the application here for us is, whatever it is we want, whatever we're chasing in life, Jesus is the one we need. Jesus is the one we need at every stage of our life. He's the one who sees the course of your life. He's the one who can make something of your life. Now, this is not the promise of a stress-free, pain-free life. It's not a promise that all our lemons will turn into lemonade if we just follow Jesus. Peter's life was not stress-free or pain-free. Now, some of that stress and pain was of Peter's own making. But much of it was because he followed Jesus. But Jesus gave Peter's life a genuine significance. He gave Peter a life that mattered. 
And as you and I think about the question, what do you want? We need to come to terms with this. Only Jesus can give our lives lasting significance. And I don't mean fame or fortune or power. I mean significance in the plans and purposes of God. Very often people who are significant in that sense go totally unnoticed by this world. But significance in the eyes of God is true significance. And the reality is, pursuing anything other than Jesus leads ultimately to insignificance. A wasted life. So whatever stage you're at, be sure of this. The only safe thing to do is to commit your life to the one who sees you and knows what he can make of you. That's the first section of this passage. The second section follows quite a similar progression to the first. The next day, we're told Jesus calls Philip, who goes to his friend Nathanael in verse 45 and says to Nathanael, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Earlier, Andrew had said, we find the Messiah. Here, Philip says, we find the one Moses wrote about in the law. Those are essentially two ways of saying the same thing. Jesus is the one promised in the Old Testament. And Philip also mentions Jesus' hometown and his dad. Joseph, who didn't actually father Jesus, Matthew and Luke in their Gospels explain that Jesus' birth was supernatural. That fits exactly with what John told us in his introduction. Jesus was not conceived in the normal way. He's the eternal God come in the flesh. So strictly speaking, Jesus is not Joseph's son, but in practical terms, he is. Joseph married Jesus' mother Mary, and he raised Jesus, along with their other kids. Anyway, Philip is bursting with excitement. He's found the Messiah, and he wants his friend Nathaniel to share in that excitement. But Nathaniel is unimpressed. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It's not clear whether Nathaniel had a bad opinion of Nazareth or if he just thought it was a totally insignificant place. Certainly it was an insignificant place in terms of the Old Testament. The Old Testament focused on Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah which actually was where Jesus was born, but he was raised in Nazareth. You can read in Matthew chapter 2 about why his parents made that move. Anyway, what Philip has seen in Jesus has convinced him he was much more than a man from Nazareth. He was God's anointed one. And so when Nathanael tries to burst Philip's balloon, Philip isn't put off. Nor, you'll notice, does he get in an argument about Nazareth. 
He just says, come and see for yourself. Which, just by the way, is a helpful pointer for our own witness for Jesus. Of course, there are times to get involved in answering questions that people raise, yes, about science or history or whatever. But ultimately, what we want people to do is come and see Jesus for themselves. That means looking at one of the four accounts of his life and teaching in the New Testament. Either reading it by themselves, reading it with us, or coming to Christianity Explored, where we meet Jesus in Mark's gospel. If you haven't experienced Christianity Explored, I encourage you to come after Easter. Sometimes people have genuine questions. Sometimes they're just trying to fob us off with what they think is a clever objection. But our calling is not to win arguments. The best thing we can do is encourage people to come and see Jesus. That's also very liberating for us as witnesses. We don't need to have all the answers. We just need to bring them to Jesus. And just another little by the way, the most effective evangelism is almost always through personal relationships. Friend to friend, as in the case of Philip and Nathaniel. Brother to brother, as with Andrew and Simon Peter. You don't have to be a preacher to say, come and see to your friends and family. And in many cases, that's what God will use to bring people to Jesus. Earlier, we noticed how Jesus could see Simon Peter in terms of what Jesus would make of Peter. And here with Nathaniel again, Jesus is able to read him. He sees right to Nathaniel's heart. In verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Earlier this morning, we read from Genesis chapter 28 about Jacob's dream at Bethel. And that passage is obviously in Jesus' mind here as he speaks to Nathanael. We'll see that very clearly in a moment. But already at this point, there's a connection to Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. Remember, the reason he was sleeping under the stars at Bethel with a stone for his pillow was because he deceived his father Isaac and his brother Esau, and Esau wanted to kill him. Jacob was a deceiver. But later, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And along with the change of name came a change of character. And what does that have to do with Nathanael? Well, initially, as we've seen, Nathanael rejected the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah. But Jesus reads him. He sees his heart, and he knows that for all his initial skepticism, Nathanael is an Israel, not a Jacob. Meaning, in his heart, he's not deceitfully trying to put up barriers to the truth. Nathanael is honest. He is ready to accept the truth when he meets it. There's no deceit in him. 
And Jesus knows you and me like that too. He knows the heart behind the things we say. Whether they're skeptical words or religious words, Jesus can truly read each one of us. So what is the point in deceit? Isn't it better to be honest? And honestly open to meeting Jesus? And finding out the truth about him? If Jesus can read your heart, what's the point of trying to hide behind objections to Christianity? Nathaniel is shocked that Jesus is able to see behind his skeptical words. He says to Jesus in 48, verse 48, how do you know me? And Jesus immediately wows Nathaniel even more by saying, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Why was Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree? Well, there were fig trees in Israel, and sometimes people sat under them. I don't think there's a special significance to the fig tree. It could have been any kind of tree. It could have been a big umbrella or a gazebo. The significance is Jesus, the Word become flesh, knew all about Nathanael. Even before Nathanael met Jesus, Jesus knew about him, even down to what was shading Nathanael from the sun when Philip called him. And that obviously supernatural knowledge prompts Nathanael to declare in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. As with the other titles people use for Jesus in this passage, they're all ways of indicating that he's the Messiah. The Christ promised in the Old Testament. In other words, Nathaniel here is coming to the same conclusion Andrew, Simon, Peter, and Philip came to earlier. They all have much to learn about what it means to be the Messiah, but already they're sure Jesus is the one they've been looking for. And here, Jesus seems almost amused by Nathanael's reaction. Verse 50, Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Several times in this passage, people have been called to come and see. And what Jesus is saying here is, Nathaniel, I get that you're impressed, but you have only just begun to see and experience who I am. Keep following and you will see greater things. You're impressed, Nathaniel, because I know what trees in your back garden Follow me and you will see all that heaven can do. And Jesus is certainly picking up here on Jacob's dream at Bethel. Of the stairway or the ladder connecting heaven and earth. But notice that here, no ladder is mentioned. 
Instead, Jesus himself is the connection between heaven and earth. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's a figure spoken about in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 describes a Son of Man, a human, with all of God's power and privileges, all God's authority. And Jesus claimed the title Son of Man for himself. He announced himself to be that unique figure described in Daniel 7. And here he says, I am the connection between heaven and earth. You don't have to go to Bethel in Israel to try and find the connection point. It's me. As one writer puts it, Jesus is the meeting point between heaven's fullness and earth's need. Jesus is the meeting point between heaven's fullness and earth's need. The angels represent the fullness of heaven, heaven's power and glory. Those who follow Jesus live their lives under the opened heaven. They live in fellowship with the one who possesses the fullness of heaven. That's the point of verse 51. This is not a promise that we'll pay visits to heaven while still on earth, or that we'll have visionary experiences of heaven. This is a promise that in Jesus, our lives will become connected to heaven. When Jacob had his dream at Bethel, God promised that his blessing would spread to all peoples on earth. And now we know that happens through Jesus. Heaven's blessings to earth flow through him. And Jesus is saying, in the events to come, and the teaching to come, you will see heaven open. You will see heaven's power and heaven's goodness, and heaven's love, and heaven's riches displayed through me. And next time we'll have our first taste of that as Jesus attends a wedding and gives a little glimpse of heaven open. And ultimately, when Jesus dies on the cross, we are given the greatest sight of heaven's fullness meeting earth's need in the person of Jesus. As he lays down his life to meet our greatest need. And these, ver these words in verse 51 are for us. They're not just for Nathaniel. You can see that at the bottom of the page in the NIV. There's a little footnote that points out when Jesus says, you will see, the you is Plural. This promise is for all those who follow Jesus. Maybe you've been following him for years. And you think you've seen the fullness of him already. Maybe you're just a little bit apathetic and just a little bit jaded in your faith because you think you've seen it all. Then listen to Jesus' promise. You haven't seen the fullness of him yet. Whatever you know about him, whatever you see of him and appreciate of him, there is always more. 
more of his power and love to meet your deepest needs, to carry you through even the toughest trial. So if you've been following him for years, come and see more of him. And if you've never really bothered with Jesus, come and see he's the one you need. Without Jesus, there is no stairway to heaven you can climb. There's no other opening in heaven. Jesus is the true connection point. He's the only connection point. So whatever we think we want, he's the one we all need. And as we prepare to share the Lord's Supper together, where we'll have an opportunity to quietly reflect on this personally, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, our next song invites us now to gather round his cross and worship him, the Lamb of God who was slain to meet our deepest need.